back to Sports and Society on March 28th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? Doing as well as we can, I think. It uh, seems to be getting more serious out there and more precautions are on the way, but inside our little place, things are going pretty well. How about you all? Very good. Yeah, I mean, we continue kind of to be in, in our own little bubble and Sarah has to go out for work, but other than that, we're pretty good place right now. I uh, walked up Mill Mountain for the third week in a row uh, yesterday, so still nice. trying to get that exercise in. So Nice, nice. So. Yeah, we were just talking off air that uh, McKay and I discovered an epic parking lot for skateboarding out in the middle of nowhere in an industrial lot off I-64, and so that's our most exciting <laughs> athletic outlet right now. Well, I, I'm intrigued. Um I would not have imagined you as a skateboard person. How did this? How did you become a skateboard person? That's a good question. I I never skateboarded at all growing up. I wasn't allowed to. Hmm. Um, it was seen as too dangerous by my parents. Yeah, um, a Fort Thomas, man, you can get in some trouble there. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> um, I always loved watching. I the I mean the early X Games stuff. Um, I I absolutely loved. So I thinking back that that's maybe like first when it entered my mind was with the growth of the X Games. And then I started skating in college um, very randomly and not at a high level whatsoever. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, discovered longboarding. Um, and so I, I would not even consider myself a longboarder. I'm one that is interested in longboarding and enjoy the feeling um, of yeah just turning i do no tricks i have <laughs> nothing in my bag other than just riding a skateboard uh and then mckay got into skating too so um it's something i think we both probably wish we did more often maybe hmm. um but it's it's a really pleasant thing just to go out to a parking lot and listen to some music and skate around a little bit it's really fun you hooligan yeah i know yeah. <laughs> well, very interesting. Well, um, you know, the sports world is still in a bit of a weird space at the moment, as we all are. Uh, what you been? Anything standing out to you? Uh, I guess I mentioned last week that Formula One was going to have a e race, and several celebrity drivers were going to be there. So, like Ian Poulter was part of it. Uh, and then I think there were four drivers that are on the current F1 grid that participated and, uh, it was held live. Uh, so there was a live broadcast and a few things stood out about it. Uh, the celebrities were terrible. Um, <laughs> and it, it was interesting that like, it was obvious that they kind of didn't know how to fully exploit what they had because, uh, I think they only interviewed Nico Hulkenberg was the only F1 driver that they interviewed during the whole broadcast. So it could have been much more interesting to have like live cameras on the drivers as they were in their house playing. Hmm. Uh, and then it was also interesting. So there's an eSports uh, F1 league uh, and they mirror the actual F1 league. And so there's a whole broadcast team for it. And it it, it was funny like – I think they're used to like 10,000 live viewers uh, and there were like 20 million. <laughs> so they were so nervous and so all over the place. Like they were just like ecstatic the whole time. It, so that was kind of fun to watch. Uh, and then the race was interesting for like a few minutes uh, and then it got kind of boring. Um, and it, I guess it was also predictable and interesting to see how good the actual uh, esports racers were. Uh, I mean, they're le legitimate professionals that mm. make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, doing F1 esports. Um, so it was interesting to see their skill, but again, it was kind of only interesting for a few minutes for me. Um, so it, it, it raised, I guess, these larger questions of what are the future of esports, and I still will claim just kind of remaining ignorant. Uh, and I would imagine it's probably like anything else that the more you learn about it, you kind of know what to look for and can 
uh, increase what's compelling about watching something with knowledge. And I admit that just not fully having the knowledge of what to watch for. Um, the last thing is what the announcers were talking a lot about was the skill of the top drivers. And it was funny, they were getting in arguments uh, with several um, former F1 drivers of if the uh, machine for the esports race is as nuanced as an actual car. Uh, and there was like seemingly a little bit of a legitimate debate happening that hmm. uh, if you take off all the assists on the video game, uh, it's apparently just incredibly difficult to drive. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting too to think about creating a, a digital machine that is so nuanced and even potentially in the future like more complex than an actual car. Uh, that said, you can't die driving a <laughs> Um, you know, a virtual car and that's mm -hmm. what the debate came down to is like you can't simulate that fear that uh, has to be managed by a driver, an actual driver Well it's fascinating because I, I don't know if you've been following this but uh, NASCAR is doing the same thing mm -hmm. um, and that and actually today uh, it should be I believe their virtual race will be live on Fox which is kind of amazing to think about um mm -hmm. last week apparently the viewership on fs1 set a record for an esports event on tv um and they have like a lot of their main drivers are participating in this i mean ricky stenhouse jimmy johnson kurt bush uh, kyle bush um clint boyer uh and most interesting to me dale earnhardt jr who is officially retired from regular racing is now riding in this circuit potentially because you can't die while doing it mm -hmm. because he had so many of the yeah. head injuries. So it's just fascinating to see that kind of going. And their comments on it were really interesting about how much they learned from doing it. Um, I mean, talking about here, um, you know, here's one guy talking about how he's having to figure out how to manage his front tires in almost exactly the same way he would uh, in a race, uh, a real race and stuff like that, which means mm -hmm. that, that's, it's just fascinating to think about who these developers were that were thinking about this and doing all this. And now they're like, oh, my goodness, everything that we've done feels justified because all of these people that we based all this on are now participating in the game that we built. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the thing, the aspect of something like tire heat and uh, tire changes it's funny to think about like the first racing video games we played, which involved like holding down A and turning left. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but now having to consider things like tire pressure and tire heat uh, and race strategy is such a change. Well, I did want to also point out here that our favorite, or excuse me, our second favorite uh, professional sports league, the NFL. Uh, have, mm -hmm. have any irony there for those that don't know uh continues to seem to be doing business as usual including they're going to go ahead with their draft here in about a month which just boggles my mind in some ways um and apparently the league has kind of come down and said you will not complain about this going on right now right uh which of course is just exactly what we would expect from uh the <laughs> yeah. nfl I saw that the comment was literally like, here's what we're doing and you're not allowed to say anything bad about it. It was like the most dictator possible uh, response. It was, it was laughable. Well, I thought it was so funny, particularly on the heels of Major League Baseball essentially saying the same thing with regard to the uh, the sign stealing thing. Like you, Teams cannot complain about this and how all the players seem to be like, what the hell? You can't tell us what we can or cannot complain about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it's fascinating that the NFL would see that and say, all right, we can do the same thing, even though it didn't seem to work out particularly well and is not working out particularly well for Major League Baseball. Right. Although you can but, argue that Major League Baseball is feeling so lucky right now that they are not in the limelight and have two months for us to forget about all the crap that happened there. Exactly. I, I w that's what I was thinking about. And I came across an article that was kind of saying that this week and it led me, I, I have not, to be honest, like fully investigated the sign stealing stuff, 
but I got a little bit into it this week. I think for the first time, really, that I, I've paid attention to it. And just one minor thing that stood out to me that I didn't know about, and I was wondering if you had seen the video of when Altuve hit a walk-off home run to go to the World Series. I think it was in 17. Uh, when he's coming around and coming to the plate and all his teammates are there, he holds his jersey and tells them, don't rip off my jersey. Have you uh, seen that video? No. It, it's like undeniable what he's doing. He literally is saying, like, don't take off my jersey because I'm wearing these, whatever that machine is that sends a little buzz into his ear uh, to tell him what pitch is coming. That's, well, and that really lays bare in some ways. Like, how could any player think that this was an acceptable thing when you're having to wear an electrical device right. that tips you off to that? That's yeah. Just, it yeah. is. It, it, to me, it was like the most significant thing I've come across personally with it of uh, revealing the mental side of it. Of like it was this moment of jubilation. So obviously, just not feeling any sort of contrition for what he was doing. I mean, he's celebrating like crazy, and at the same time saying, "Don't take off my jersey because I'll get caught for cheating." It's like the cheating meant nothing to them at that point. And so it becomes this real interesting kind of psychological drama of how do you get to that point to where you just don't care. So uh, I'm going to make a proposal for our next week's uh, podcast live here. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to propose that we uh, juxtapose this scandal with the Black Sox scandal and uh, see what we think has changed in Major League Baseball during that time. I love it. I'm all in. All right. All right. You hear that, folks? We're talking about baseball, the worst sports in the world. <laughs> My thought was like, oh, now I have an, ex an excuse to watch historical baseball documentaries. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. What about you? You were paying attention to Belarus. I am. Well, it's fascinating just to follow the different media outlets. Like the ESPN is so grateful to the NFL and I have to think that they whispered in Roger Goodell's ear, "Hey, we would really appreciate it if you guys just went about business mm -hmm. as normal because that's the only thing really they have to report on." Right. Uh and I was really confirmed again that um I think we'd be in a way worse place with regard to this virus right now if Rudy Gobert hadn't tested positive uh when he did. Mm -hmm. Uh I remain convinced of that, particularly looking back and seeing that that was really for me the moment I feel like people started taking this seriously to see the such a major institution take a major step like that. And it's been fascinating to follow the NBA. I don't know if you follow their YouTube stuff, but they've been doing a bunch of uh, at-home interviews with players talking about uh, stuff, which I've really appreciated mm. that angle on. Um, and then you juxtapose that with uh, – the Belarusian soccer league, which continues to play and continues to have fans in the stands, which is just shocking to me. Um, yeah. Are they like filling up the stadiums? The, like, are they the, packed out or the is it pictures really do not appear that it's not packed out, but there do yeah. seem to be a number of people there, um, uh, which I, I hadn't put two and two together. Uh, I don't know if you guys are watching uh, tiger King, like the rest of the world. No, we have not yet. All right, so I, I have, I'm just got into it the other day, and I'm not very far into it. But uh, uh, I was just reminded that uh, these people, these characters on this zoo, uh, ring a bell to the ultras in European soccer. So just to, <laughs> just something to keep in mind if you ever do make it down that path. But, yeah. But uh, yeah, fascinating to think about someone still going, and even uh, this morning, just. Um, there's horse racing continuing with no fans in the stands, which just speaks mm. to how much money is involved in these things, really. Mm -hmm. I'm looking up a headline right now that says, tractors and vodka will cure Belarus of the coronavirus, says the leader. <laughs> it's um, the politics of this have become staggering. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've seen the incredible lack of leadership across the globe and at home in particular, it feels like. So, mm -hmm. but, 
We will try not to go down that road too deeply, although I'm sure we could spend many hours <laughs> bitching about this stuff. So, yeah. Thank goodness well, we have no, folks no. like Adam Silver leading in their own way. Seriously. Yeah. I'll I'll put my weight behind Adam Silver as I will Andy Bashir, Kentucky's governor. Well, you know, it is um there was someone that was uh, commenting that uh, Biden should be looking for governors that have handled this well as potential um, running mates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with that. The problem is that the, all of those folks are uh, Andy Bashir, Cuomo, even uh, our guy here um, in Virginia have all done well, but they're all white men. So probably right. not the ideal choice there. Right, right. I mean, if you could get Fauci, I mean, he, he, that's a shoe in then, right? <laughs> yeah, Fauci's uh, become a star, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, my. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's escape into our bubble again and look at the 70s and 80s in cricket, shall we? We shall. And I was going to say is I, I, I find <laughs> we're sitting here talking about politics and the bemoaning the political nature of everything, and we chose uh, – Colonialism and post-colonialism is a topic for today. <laughs> <laughs> That's real light stuff. Well, yeah, and uh, and institutional uh, racism and all kinds mm-hmm. of other things. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this week uh, we have chosen. Uh, you've probably heard me uh, recommend this to Kyle a couple times to watch Fire in Babylon as a documentary about the West Indies cricket team in, um, in the seventies and eighties. Uh, a really fascinating documentary that focuses on how this team kind of went from having a number of stellar players to being perhaps the most dominant uh, team sports performance we've ever seen. I don't know. Uh, that's it might be a stretch, but uh, they didn't lose for 15 years, which is uh, staggering to think about. Um, and really, uh, so this documentary, Fire in Babylon, um, for those that don't know, and I did not know this before this, Babylon is a, a term used in Rastafarian culture to refer to corrupt institutions or things that uh, are essentially keeping people down. Um, and so uh, this was really a documentary about how this group of individuals led by uh, Vivian Richards and, oh gosh, I can't remember the other captain's name. Do you remember the other captain's name, Kyle? Clive Lloyd, I Clive believe. Lloyd, yeah. Clive Lloyd started and then Viv Richards kind of continued it, uh, turned this team into uh, an object of immense pride for the West Indies and um, kind of subverted all of the norms in sports and took over the narrative entirely. They um, Kind of the way that it's built is to look at how um, the West Indies, which for those that don't know, most people probably wouldn't know this, is a team made up of all the island nations in the Caribbean. So Bahamas, Grenada, uh, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, all of these countries fall together under this West Indies title. So it's already a fascinating thing because there's a bunch of different countries that have to come together to play on the same team. Um, and obviously it's a, it's a large uh, um, African population, a black population. And so they kind of walks them through subverting the norms when they kind of took over and started the fast pitch or fast bowl revolution that we still see today. And then I think if you watch the cricket today, you still see that fast bowling makes a difference between a good team and an average team. Um, And so they kind of were the first ones to kind of go there and it kind of walks through that pathway for them to become the most dominant team that cricket has ever seen. Um, so that's kind of a brief overview. Anything you want to fill in there, Kyle? Uh, I no, that's good. Um, I I think maybe it's um, worth pointing out that it has all the hallmarks of a feel-good documentary story, mm-hmm. and that it kind of goes through this kind of rags to riches uh, sort of narrative structure. And where that seems to get more significant is that it's not just um, a rags to riches story in in the sense that it's a story of pushing back against colonialism mm-hmm. uh, and so it's not like a pure uplift story it's a 
even when we're beating them, it's uh, still worth mentioning and recognizing that these countries are often um, in dire straits and impoverished because of what the European nations did in this part of the world uh, and in some ways continue to do. Um, and so uh, while the documentary is about cricket underlying the entire story, not even underlying, in the forefront, um, as can be observed, is the post-colonial narrative. Uh, And so I I think, uh, for me, what was really fascinating and interesting to pay attention to was like how that was handled, Mm -hmm. how that part of the story was handled by the filmmakers themselves. That being, in addition to watching the actual cricket, uh, was really fascinating. And like you said, uh, the fast bowling or pace bowling aspect is is probably what stood out to me most uh, alongside the post-colonial narrative. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's the thing that I think they did a really good job of was um, kind of walking through. And so the West Indies before this time, and for, this, for the purposes of this, we're kind of talking about 74 to... 94 uh but really for the the documentary focused on like 74 to the early 80s um and so uh it's fascinating to me that they had these phenomenal players and they talked about how people loved the west indies because they were never really going to win but they would always bring a flair and an energy that people liked to see if it didn't make them uncomfortable and think that england was going to lose or that australia was going to lose um but what really stood out to me was how, um, at least from the telling of the story, and everything is, of course, more complex than this, was how this one guy, Clive Lloyd, um, who just, I would love to sit down and chat with him on some level. He's probably become much more boring as he ages, but mm-hmm. um, was this kind of quiet guy that became the leader of the team and turned them into this force that was there. And he did it through really powerful professionalism but also capturing and leading with the energy and anger that was so prevalent in that post-colonial age so that his ability as a leader to kind of take that energy and make it something productive was one of the things that stood out for me the most of the whole thing Mm -hmm. and so this raises a a couple uh, interesting things that I came across in reading about the documentary and then reading a little bit more about how cricket is talked about in kind of post-colonial scholarship world. And what became evident was, and, and this is kind of what I was um, saying just a second ago of like the post-colonial narrative is a part of this documentary. Mm-hmm. And I think what was interesting to me is that uh it seemingly was a documentary of just one version of the post-colonial narrative. And I, I'm not saying this is like a knock. I'm just saying it is like there are other versions of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was one of them. And so I think the Clive Lloyd example is a, 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 a good iteration of this. And so, for example, I came across that there's kind of a debate about um, the extent to which cricket is revolutionary Hmm. for these formerly colonized nations. And so I'll try and go through these briefly, but there's kind of four arguments uh, as best I can understand it. And I'm brand new to this, so I might be missing a whole lot here. But um, there is an argument that uh, cricket is emancipatory and revolutionary when those that were formerly colonized play their own version of the game. And that's all the way down to things like how you hold the bat or Mm. how you bowl or uh, just doing things that are not of the fundamentals that were taught in Victorian England. Uh, And so in some ways you could say that Clive Clive Lloyd bringing kind of this professionalism to the West Indies team was not an emancipatory thing to do. Uh, In fact, it was just like playing by the Victorian rules, which is you have this like clear hierarchy. You have a leader that sets some rules and you do these things. And when we do these things, then we will have success. Um, So that might be one thing to Hmm. go into more. Uh, 
Um, should I go ahead and say these other yeah, three? Yeah, go ahead. I'm intrigued. Okay. okay. Uh, <clears throat> one way in which this is an arg- another argument for a way in which cricket can be revolutionary is to use the gentlemanly nature of the game against the British. And so this is kind of a more historical argument that has been used in these formerly colonized nations that play cricket. And what they can do is say, look, you're trying to get us to play this game a certain way and follow your rules. But as soon as we go outside the cricket stadium, you're not doing any of these things. So you tell us to be like good citizens. We have to play in this gentlemanly manner. But when we go outside, you're colonizing us. Mm -hmm. So kind of using cricket against them to show them to be hypocritical. Hence the... Honorary white man in South Africa portion of the film. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. Uh, the third one says that cricket might actually not be all that emancipatory um, because this is kind of back to what I was saying about Clive Lloyd is that uh, by partaking in the hierarchy and by playing by the rules, uh, it kind of reinscribes, and the phrase here is reinscribes the blackness and whiteness uh, that was attributed to the game by colonizers. Um, so it's still playing by the confines put in place of the colonial structure. And then the last one is uh, kind of a newer argument that's emerging, and it's the globalism versus nationalism argument. And what it is saying is at a more acute granular level that any claim of nationalism in cricket is being watered down by capitalism in sports. So essentially the idea that the 25 or so members of the West Indies national team uh, are all millionaires now um, or close to millionaires are making a lot of money. And what they are doing is living in a micro environment of professional athletes that is entirely ruled by capitalism. And when you abide by those rules, you lose the emancipatory nature of the game. So for example, You might have, if you're a West Indies cricket player and you grew up playing on the beach, you might hold the bat differently. But when you play in the IPL and you see your peers holding the bat a certain way and they're making more money by holding the bat that way, you're going to start holding the bat that way too. And so what emerges is kind of like a monolithic version of the game and it's the capitalism version of the game. So it's like heightened efficiency. And it goes as far as to say too that... uh, the fact that cricketers worldwide all keep the same schedule now kind of like pushes back against there being a nationalistic, cultural-based version of the game. And so in that sense, like all the national teams are starting to look more and more alike when you look at the style of play. And so therefore, it's not what it used to be. Interesting. Uh, I feel like there's a couple arguments that are not included in there for better or for worse. One being kind of the the argument that it can be uh, uh, an emancipatory form when you subvert the norms and become better at it than Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the colonizers. I think about this in our um, kind of uh, African-American culture, and even it was very prominent in this film, that the use of the Mm N-word as a reclaimed uh, uh, word there. Um, And so I think that that's part that I would point to in this in, in some sense is that they kind of showed the sham of it all in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also I think that there's, um, and this is a question that I don't quite know the answer to, but I think that there's something to be said too for um, the pride that was given in that moment, Mm -hmm. that for your entire history as a country, as as a, not your entire history, but for the last 50, 100 years, you have been told, by these white men that you are no good, that you can't be mm-hmm. anything of value, that you don't bring anything except for your body to the table. Uh, and then to go out and prove yourselves not only physically, but uh, what seemed to be the case here was mentally stronger and superior in these cases than these other cricketers, I think gives a, gives an immense sense of pride. And I think that's what we kind of feel like with the, um, with the Olympics in some way, right? That how much of our enjoyment of that as Americans is based in, we are the best country because we produce the best athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, like that can be a very destructive force at the same time. And we see Mm -hmm. that with American nationalism. Um, 
so whether or not that's a good thing or not is is a question but i do um i do think it's a very complex thing and i think that you're right mm-hmm. that it's become much harder i would say that one of the things that really stood out to me in this documentary was all the people that they talked to um with the possible exception of the one gentleman that went to go play in south africa mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> seemed to really stand on this point of pride and being west indian and african um mm-hmm. and i think that that's a really powerful thing to think about is that this group of cricketers at this time as recently as this was i mean uh, 40 years ago was able to stand on principle in a way that i don't think we see athletes stand on principle anymore um Mm -hmm. and so i think that's really compelling i also think that seeing things like them even though that you could argue this is a very capitalistic thing and that we uh, we don't know how much we should support this. The fact that they essentially shut down the West Indies cricket to go play in uh, Australia for an unsanctioned league speaks immense amounts to their ability to subvert the administration of cricket, which I think is, we see around the world that the administration of these massive sports, something like FIFA, that that's uh, um, very much in the same vein and connected with the politics of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so when you can show your power and beat that, um, I think that that's an immensely powerful statement that can be, um, mm-hmm. can be enlightening and empowering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- so this leads me to the place of like kind of asking like, why does this matter? Why does the story of the West Indies team being undefeated in test match cricket for 15 years matter? And I think for me, where I start to answer that question is like, well, what does it accomplish politically? And you pointed to some of those things being Mm -hmm. the principles and the community that was engendered by it and the feeling of um, sovereignty that comes from it, I think. And those things are hard to measure in a culture, right? But uh, nonetheless, at least as it was as it was presented in the documentary, it did bring about a certain amount of like political cohesiveness in the region, uh, and seemingly brought together a lot of these nations that are in fact quite different from each other culturally. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the cricket team, for a period of time, because of their success at a game, were capable to some extent of bringing a region of the world closer together and uh, kind of bringing about that feeling of belonging. And then that translating into actual like political achievement seems significant too. And so I don't know what it meant for governments in these sovereign states in the region. I'm, I'm ignorant of that. But going back to the hierarchy that you mentioned, that being those that control cricket worldwide, I think they were capable of subverting that. And I think it's there's probably books out there about how the West Indies national team was part of a movement uh, to make those that control cricket less white and less male and less British and less Australian. Um, and so when I like find like, okay, what was really compelling to me personally, what mattered to me, it was that part probably more than anything else. And where that be- got really interesting for me, and I think this is like, the ultimate draw for me uh, in our sports and society project uh, is to talk about and shed light on it was a style of play that made that possible. Mm -hmm. And very specifically, it was that uh, from like 78 to 85, they had four of the best fast bowlers in the world. And more than that, I, it, it got me so much more interested in learning more about fast bowling. I guess it's worth pointing out that it's obvious in the name fast bowling is throwing it as hard as you can. Uh, but it's more than that. And fast bowling kind of blurs the lines of the hypocrisy that underlies cricket and the gentlemanly nature of the game in that unapologetically what these West Indian fast bowlers were saying is we're throwing at people. Uh, and we're while you're batting against us, we would rather you be scared than anything else. Because if you're scared, you're not going to be able mm-hmm. to bat all that well. Uh, and so it was a matter of kind of putting fear uh, into these um, 
players that were representative for the West Indians as like emblematic of colonialism. So they're sitting there like throwing the ball as hard as they can at former colonizers. Uh, and that was what launched them to be the best team in the world for those years, thereby making uh, the cricket boards kind of have to start negotiating things they hadn't had to negotiate before. And so in that way, that's where like what matters is this was – uh, a game showing power dynamics and uh, maybe beginning the process of shifting those dynamics. Well, I think there's also something about being able to put a mirror to the hypocrisy of things. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think this documentary did a really good job of outlining that fast bowling had been around for a while. And in fact, that the Australians as the, as were considered the best team were the kind of, they played this dirty style you know, Tomo, yeah. Tomo and Lily were, were very outright that they were going to hit you. Like they, they didn't yep. make any bones about it. And yet when this West Indian team started doing the same thing, all of a sudden there's an uproar, uh, right. about it. And so that's, uh, I think putting that mirror to that hypocrisy is a very powerful tool as well. Cause even though some people won't see it, there will be others that say, hey, wait a minute, this is the same thing that we're doing. Um, right. Well, I think it's also powerful. And I, this is this is white respectability politics in some regard here, but I do think that there that there's something to be said for um, Clive Lloyd as this quiet kind of leader, masking the other more flamboyant characters in there. I mean, Viv Richards was clearly mm -hmm. like uh, not uh, uh, just I'm going to sit here and let you walk on me, person. He was going to fight you back this that story he told about you know i'm gonna stare you down if you try and throw at me and when you walk mm -hmm. back and you turn around and look if i'm still looking i'm still gonna be looking at you mm -hmm. like this guy it's clearly an intimidating thing uh and so to put for clive to be able to put that veneer of professionalism on it made it so that it was not as easy to dismiss in some ways i think which i think you know you could argue one way or the other that perhaps that um limited the impact of it but there's another argument that that made that impact even more potent to those folks that needed to hear that kind of sanitized version of it mm -hmm. and so it was that piece too that where a little uh, not a little bit a whole lot of conflict entered for me while watching and this is kind of alluding to something we've talked a lot about and others talk a lot about and that is kind of the pornographic nature of highlight reels mm -hmm. and in particular highlight reels that are of injury mm -hmm. and how many clips are there uh in the documentary of people getting hurt um by fast bowlers mm -hmm. bouncing into people's heads and even uh you mentioned viv richards who i a quick glance i i it seems like a lot of people consider him one of the best batsmen of all time yeah. Clear, um, and revered across the nations, it seems right, like. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that he batted without a helmet, mm -hmm. <laughs> such as to make it clear to the Australian and English fast bowlers that the only way you're going to get me out is you're going to have to kill me. Uh, and he literally said that. He's like, he's like, every time I went out to bat, I carried the weight of colonialism on my shoulders, mm -hmm. and therefore my, I had to put my life on the line, and I was ready to die every time I went out to bat. It's like, holy smokes. I, I, where my conflict entered is uh, we don't like the NFL because of many reasons, but one being like that they're exploiting violence and selling it, much like UFC and so many other sports. And that was happening in this documentary, but then it like put me in my place essentially to say like, okay, you can have that view, but I don't know if I'm allowed to apply it in this situation. Mm -hmm. But that was the conflict I was feeling while watching. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it is fascinating because I found myself in the same way. Like you know, I've had my bones on here many times about how the reason I don't care for LeBron is because he's physically dominant and so he doesn't like the the nuances aren't there as much in his game which i find to be the part that i enjoy the most and yet here we are uh, in the same place we're seeing that because these 
fast bowlers were so physically dominant over them. And it is, I have to confess that watching those um, run-ups of Michael Holding is mesmerizing to just it to is, see yeah. him run up. It's poetic. Um, and so to see that physical domination be mirrored with this anti-colonialism, we're putting our own stamp on this, um, made it a really powerful statement mm-hmm. i mean it still raises the question for me of the you know and this is kind of where i come down in the nfl is that i have no issues with people wanting to play football in this way mm-hmm. i just don't want to be the one that is encouraging them to do so mm-hmm. uh, and i feel like this is a little bit different in that the violence is a little less inherent to the mm-hmm. game but there is something still there about you know uh the violence means something different when it's done in that uh, emancipatory way. And I think we, that mm-hmm. goes back to, um, you know, I think that I am not a scholar and uh, on this in any ways, and um, I will probably butcher my understanding of this, and you as a history teacher can probably do a better understanding, but I think there's a solid argument to be made that someone like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is not nearly as effective without the Black Panthers and without more militant versions of that fight happening at the same time, even if mm-hmm. that kind of militantism or militarism makes us uh, uncomfortable to think about mm-hmm. people losing their lives or getting hurt. Um, I think it's often a necessary force in some of these conversations. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and conversation topic. And uh, it's one of those things, too, that is um, such an enduring question of that being when we're pursuing a kind of like collective consciousness raising, um, is it that uh, the the multi-pronged approach is always going to be the most effective or if we had a more homogenous approach, would that be more effective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So, and it is, I mean, we remain, we're obviously, we're still, we're um, as capitalistic as ever. So um, there's arguments to be made that we haven't figured these things out and racism is still very real and present. And I have to say that that was, for me, one of the biggest takeaways of this whole thing um, Mm -hmm. was the thing about how recently this was. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, up until the point when we were being born and our parents were adults through this time, that this kind of overt, racism and this kind of stuff was still so prevalent at that point it's it's it rings a little bit to the false narrative that we have built for our school age folks that we have overcome this issue which i think is something that you probably deal with and i wish that more public school folks would deal with mm-hmm. well and so to me to well let me try that again <laughs> Similarly, for me, a key takeaway could be observed in the snippets of the documentary that uh, showed modern-day West Indies Hmm. uh, or clips from these small islands where they were interviewing people that were remembering back on these things. Uh, And they did this with a lot of famous musicians as well. But what kind of like bleeds through the screen in all of those uh, little snippets of people in modern day is the poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a story still being told. And I, I think what the documentary did well in that way was to make that apparent that um, racism, poverty, colonialism, uh, just because the West Indies had a really good team for a few years, like these larger problems are, are still underneath mm-hmm. it all. And that, and that for me goes back to this essential question of all this stuff that, um, you know, we can look at LeBron doing amazing things. Now we can look at Megan Rapinoe doing amazing things right now. We can do all of this. And yet the question is that the, the system that we operate in very now is very good at tamping down that momentum and those expectations. Mm-hmm. And so this West Indies team, I think, uh, my kind of, takeaway from all this is that they did this amazing thing where they were able to give folks in that community a vision of a better world and to take the take the fight to the colonizer in some ways and come out as the winner mm-hmm. um and so to create this amazingly compelling vision of what a future could be and yet the system the systemic forces 
uh, kind of shut that down and mm-hmm. kept it from being what it could have been. Um, right. And so I think that that's what we see in all these cases. And the question becomes, how do we take these amazing Calvinizing forces like we're seeing right now? I mean, there's tons of arguments out there happening right now about how this is going to change our consumer culture forever. This is going to change, yada, yada, yada. And I remain very unconvinced that this is going to do anything to change our broader culture and society uh, mm-hmm. and norms right now. Uh, you know, as ma- we can all say this should make us appreciate the grocery store worker, but it's not really going to change that relationship with them in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it makes me think of uh, what a Vanguard is mm-hmm. and by no means am I trying to appropriate any, movements that are part of a collective vanguard uh other than to say i i I find it compelling to pay attention to where fuel for the fire for those vanguard like movements comes from and so i think if i were to like slot this documentary somewhere i think it would be in that of like Mm. there's a lot of inspiration here uh and like you said systemic problems persist uh, and in some ways, this documentary probably could have even gone a little bit deeper into those. Uh, but I think it seem, seemingly operates really well as kind of this inspiring fuel uh, that could potentially like continue to catalyze work that has to be done kind of thing. Well, yeah, and I think that um, I, I kind of want to say and, and piggyback on that in some ways and talk about um, I think one of the biggest reasons that the systems that we operate in the colonial system, the racial systems, the capitalist systems uh, are allowed to continue the way they are is because they limit our imaginations Mm -hmm. um, that we can't, I mean, we're essentially at a point in the United States right now where we believe this is the pinnacle of society and that there is nothing better. So there's not, you know, I'm talking to folks in nonprofit circles and they're blatantly telling me, you know, poverty is always going to exist, and my uh, it just baggles my mind that we have come to accept that as a thing. And I might uh, objectively believe that I can't cure poverty, but I have to believe that we have there's a better society out there that we can create. And I think that that's what speaks to me in some ways most is that these cricketers saw the potential for them to use their platform as really good athletes to make political stands against these. Uh, mm-hmm. former colonizers and that that um uh, they were agents that allowed us to see a new future and a different possibility mm-hmm. and that was kind of shut down because the imaginative capacity wasn't there to continue it but um I, my hope would be that more and more of us uh, kind of understand and start thinking bigger about what can be done and that when you think bigger about what can be done like these guys did um Mm-hmm. that you can become something much greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And it, it causes me to want to call this a sort of memorializing in the mm-hmm. best of ways, kind of an homage to that those that catalyzed a broader imaginative capacity. Um, and so in that way, it's like, yeah, I love these stories. Um, <laughs> and especially love sports-based ones. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, uh, I will go on record right now saying that we would flip our shit if uh, Michael Holding or Viv Richards wanted to come on the podcast. So yeah, that uh, would be that would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, fascinating to me too, because uh, I think one of the positive things that can be taken out of this, and we've been rather negative this last little bit about how it didn't become what it could have become, but I do want to say that they have made significant progress mm-hmm. um, and the the way that they have played the game still remains to be seen these days and i think it's really telling to me that michael holding is now considered one of the best uh commentators on the sport mm-hmm. in the world and so you can listen to him all the time and so to have someone that came from that revolutionary background and, and rebellious background become uh, see the sport change enough that he can be that kind of commentator i think speaks to the sport Mm-hmm. adjusting some if not all the way that we would like it to be mm-hmm. indeed i love that so well you got anything else on man i don't think so i think that's a good place to wrap it up i will uh, recommend it and i think that one of the things that i wanted to point out that one of the things that 
I didn't do much research into the people that actually did the documentary. That's more your territory than mine, Kyle. Mm-hmm. But um, I will say that I really appreciated the musical choices they made through mm-hmm. it because I felt like they were not musical choices that I particularly enjoyed, but they were very much the representation of what they were trying to do uh, to represent the West Indies in its uh, in a genuine way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, British filmmakers, um, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. And the uh, writer and director was uh, Stephen Riley, who's uh, Northern Irish. And um, from what I could find, uh, I, this is again getting into kind of that last point that you were making of like uh, when revolutionaries find common space amongst the establishment. And there's a whole other conversation to have about mm-hmm. sports documentaries and who makes them and for what purposes. So I don't know anything about Stephen Riley other than he's a British film director that went to Oxford. <laughs> right. And so the first question is like, wait a minute. OK, I I probably need that lens as I watch this documentary that um, it's someone with an Oxford degree traveling to the West Indies to make a documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not ready to comment on if that should or shouldn't happen. I'm just saying that for me, that layer is there now, you know? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Um, Very good. Well, um, I'm sorry. I meant to ask this earlier, but, um, I wanted to ask, so there's this amazing quote in there, and I presume you know what I'm going to mention right now, but I want to know your response when you first heard the the uh, English captain talking about intending to make them grovel. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, it was like, oh, you just sparked a revolution, you idiot. <laughs> it was like classic, so classic. Um, just the perfect way to... Uh, ignite some fury in your opponents is to say you're going to make them grovel. Well, just the the arrogance to be mm-hmm. able to say that is just staggering. Mm-hmm. It it puts a it puts a lens on everything, and you're like, oh, okay, right. Um, so, yeah. I'm sure he regrets those words to these days. Perhaps not because of why he should be regretting them, but because from a sporting perspective, it probably mm-hmm. screwed him over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my! Well, we'll wrap it up there. Um, anything else you want to share before we wrap up the podcast, Kyle? I don't think so. I'm good there. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Um, we'll be back next week. It thinks like we're going to talk about baseball, the world's um, more boring version of cricket. Um, <laughs> seriously, cricket has so much more strategy in it than baseball does. It's just staggering. But anyway, if you don't believe me, go watch some cricket. Um, and uh, thank you, Kyle. We'll be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks, man. <laughs>